This is Off Zero, brought to you by LearnBitcoin.io. Welcome to Off Zero, the new podcast from the team at LearnBitcoin.io, where any topic is welcome as long as it's Bitcoin. We strive for an informal and relaxed atmosphere so that you can learn about Bitcoin topics comfortably. A note that LearnBitcoin.io is the easiest way for companies and individuals to learn about Bitcoin. It includes CFP, approved course content, and access to a Discord community to meet and connect with fellow Bitcoiners. Join up today at www.LearnBitcoin.io. I'm your host, Keith Laska, also known as Professor B, and I'm lucky enough to be joined by Professor Peter St. Ange today, who is breaking me in for our very first episode. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Keith, and it's an honor to be here for the inaugural episode. <laughs> Peter holds a PhD in economics from George Mason University, a former Montreal Economic Institute senior fellow and university business professor. He currently serves as an economic research fellow at the Heritage Foundation and fellow at the Mies Institute. Peter makes daily videos on economics and freedom where he breaks down the market news in a simple and bite-sized way. Now, uh, before we begin, every guest who joins Off Zero gets to choose a charity that LearnBitcoin.io donates to on behalf of them. And Peter has chosen the Mies Institute so that they can keep their focus on Bitcoin. Thank you very much for, uh, for that, Peter. We appreciate it. And we'll send you the transaction details when complete. So welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. So first off, I have to say I've been following you for... Sometime uh, we had the pleasure at meeting at uh, Pacific Bitcoin over in Santa Monica, and after you presented, I think you were the Taylor Swift of the Pacific Bitcoin <laughs> conference. There was a line of individuals waiting to meet you, and I'm sure if they had pieces of paper, you would have signed for them as well. Uh, how is it that you have been so successful and grown so quickly uh, within the Bitcoin community and general community on on X? Yeah, I've been active in the Bitcoin community uh, really since about, I think my first article was in 2013, uh, sort of trying to show Austrian economists the light. You know, a lot of people in the Austrian community are traditionally pro-gold, but they, they had been hostile to Bitcoin. Uh, so I've been active in the community for a long time, but I think really um, the, you know, sort of people wanting to come meet me has to do with the daily videos. Uh, and those I started doing about six months. You and I, Keith, had talked about kind of the genesis of those that uh, I used to do those. So I was teaching MBA and in order to make the classes more interesting, you know, so I was teaching in Taiwan and I was I, I didn't have seniority. I was the outsider. So they would give me the courses, the sort of time slots nobody wanted. Right. So they would give me like 9 a.m. on a Friday. All right. <laughs> and nobody... I mean, you know, if you've taught MBA, nobody is coming to class at 9 a.m. on a Friday because MBA students drink a lot uh, and they're hungover. And so I, I, you know, was trying to think, OK, how do I encourage people to actually show up? Uh, and so I used to do these little kind of, you know, five, 10 minute shticks about what's happening in the news to relate it to the course content. So if you're teaching about strategy or marketing or something, then, you know, you talk about what some company is doing, uh, Bud Light or something like that. And so this was kind of to bring kids in. And I really enjoyed that. Like sometimes it would run too long and, you know, I'd end up using most of the first hour just goofing around on whatever's in the news. Uh, but anyway, so my wife was like, 
you know, if you really enjoy doing that, you should, you know, just, just put up on the internet. You don't, you don't have to have a, an actual classroom since you're doing a remote. Uh, so we did, it took off. I was shocked, uh, how it took off. And what's been fun about it is that, you know, a lot of the topics I deal with are things like, uh, central banking, fractional reserve banking, inflation, uh, Austrian business cycle theory, uh, a lot of history. And what's been fun is that people who listen to these are completely normal people, right? These are not PhDs. Uh, I mean, there are PhDs who, who, um, who listen as well, but you've got like truck drivers who, you know, they want to know like what's happening with, you know, money market funds coming out of banks, you know, because they can't be rehypothecated. And so that reduces the money supply. And you're like, like this is a truck driver. Okay. And they have yeah. a level of sophistication about the economy that like fed researchers can only dream of. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's exciting to me that, I mean, in a sense, it's sad. Like the reason why people know so much about the economy is because things are so screwed up, right? You know, it's kind of like um, if you've got a car that's really reliable, then you're not going to know anything about it, right? But if you've got a 25-year-old car that keeps breaking down, you're going to become very, very well educated on the various aspects of car repair. So unfortunately, like regular voters have to be deeply informed about economy repair uh, because they're screwing up things so bad. But at the same time, it's exciting that completely normal people, they want to know about this. They want to know who's ripping them off, who's screwing them this week. And it really is. I mean, you know, when you go across the board, whether it's Yellen or Biden or Powell, all of these guys, they're not leaders. They're not, you know, careful uh, custodians of our economy. These guys are all running a hustle on, you know, taxpayers, on dollar holders. And so exposing these people, I think, is really rewarding. And, and, and the hustle works just as long as enough people don't understand how right. the economy mm-hmm. actually functions, right? And so I, 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 always, uh, I always listen to your, uh, your clips and I hear these fantastic words like the clowns that are running things <laughs> and the unicorn farts that kind of present themselves at various times during decision making. What, yeah. you know, what, what happens if and when the majority start to understand how the money printer actually works? Because that, to me, feels like something that could be a pivotal moment in society. Yeah, we've been there at various points in American history. I think public education has been really, really successful at making everybody stupid. Uh, If we go back before public education really took off, so, you know, in the late 18th century, early 18th century, Um, people did understand these things and what they did with that knowledge was elected who would today be considered extremists, but, you know, people like Andrew Jackson, who, uh, ended the, the last central bank, the second, uh, bank of the United States, uh, in 1879, you know, they got the gold standard, uh, reestablished after Lincoln had broken it during his war. So if voters understand this stuff, you know, one of the saving graces of politicians is that, yes, they're evil, but they're also spineless. And spineless is very useful because it means that they don't care, right? They will rip off the people if that's, you know, where the incentives lead them. But they will also do amazing, wonderful things on behalf of the people if they're told to. They really don't care. You know, people like Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, day to day, yes, they do evil things, but they don't, they don't actually believe in any of this stuff. Right. If the public opinion, if it swings one way or another way, they will flip on a dime. So people have to remember that, that, you know, these people are not like an occupying army that you have to fight. 
the cronies behind them, okay, the donors, the lobbyists, the special interests, those guys, yes, they are motivated and, you know, <laughs> they will put up resistance. But the actual politicians do not care. So if enough voters understand, for example, that money printing creates inflation, the politicians will do what they're told. Yes, exactly. And and speaking of which, you know, where in your mind does, does monetary policy stand today? And what do you see as the biggest macro risk to the economy? I know you touch on this in your videos. Yeah, I think that, I mean, in a sense, inflation is where we were in the 1970s, where, you know, the purpose of a central bank is to print as much money as possible. Um, and the problem, of course, is that, you know, if they print too much at once, then that bleeds through into price increases, and then that makes voters angry, right? So they're constantly trying to navigate this. My favorite metaphor for that is a gasoline thief, you know, so he goes around to the neighbors and he steals a gallon out of everybody's tank every night. And it's very, very important that you don't drain anybody's tank altogether, right? Because that, that they're going to notice. Uh, so you just have to take small amounts. And so every so often, the central banks um, sort of finance enough money printing that they do end up stealing large amounts. So that's happening at the moment. That's why we've had this uh, high inflation over the past couple of years. They pumped out about, what well, was about $6 trillion in the U.S. and about $10 trillion uh, across the major economies in order to finance COVID lockdowns. And that that was too much at once, right? There was a point uh, in, I believe, 2021, where about one in three dollars had fresh ink on it. So that got away from them. Uh, and, and so that's why, you know, when you open the newspaper, it's all about Powell fighting inflation. Well, yes, it's the inflation he caused. They have drained a couple of gas tanks in the neighborhood. And so now he's furiously trying to cover up what they've done and try to get it back down to that gradual theft uh, that they're used to, a theft that's small enough that it keeps prices rising at about 2%. Um, now, the last time we were here was in the 1970s, where, again, they tried to do the gun and the butter at the same time. So you had uh, LBJ's Great Society, which was this massive welfare handout that, of course, created a you know entire sort of zombie army of government dependents who, um, you know, if if you look at a city like uh, Chicago or Detroit or New yeah. York, you compare it to like 1950 before the Great Society. And, you know, these were beacons for humanity. You know, people, you can find videos of people, uh, sort of um, documentaries about the amazing city of the future, Detroit from the 1950s. And it's the way that people would talk about Dubai today. Okay, like look mm -hmm. at all these amazing things in Detroit. And, you know, happy people walking around on a Sunday with the kids. And, and I mean, it's just, it's just shocking what all that money bought us. But at any rate, they printed all that money for the Great Society. Meanwhile, they were running all these foreign wars, most dramatically the Vietnam War at the time. So inflation got, got away from them. Uh, so we have been here before. What I think is most concerning at the moment is that if we go back to the 70s, there's sort of two caveats. So one of them is that we've got um, a lot more debt than we had in the 1970s, right? So in the 1970s, we had just come off the gold standard. Nixon had just broke it in 1971. By the way, he broke it temporarily. All right. His exact phrase was, I've temporarily instructed the Treasury Secretary to suspend. The so any old time, I'm, I'm just waiting for us to flip right back to the, to the gold standard again, <laughs> to the gold window. Um, but we've got a ton more debt today than we did in the 1970s, right? So I think that if we do repeat the 1970s show, we're probably going to have a 2008-style financial crisis laid on top of it. So I think um, if we continue going that route, which 
seems pretty clear we are. There's there's really no countervailing force uh, to the spending aside from crisis itself. So I think we're going to continue down that 70s show, and that's going to be substantially worse. The other caveat when we're comparing to the 70s is that the 70s ended because of Paul Volcker, right? Paul Volcker Mm -hmm. cranked up interest rates to nearly 20%, yet mortgages were running at 19%. The thing is, Paul Volcker had been appointed by Jimmy Carter, which is bizarre because Jimmy Carter, of course, was an inflationist, but I did. I guess he got hoodwinked uh, by Volcker and turned out to be a very hard money guy. But the problem is that Jimmy – so Volcker pulling interest rates up that fast, that high, crashed the economy. had this series of really brutal recessions in the late 70s, early 80s. And those recessions cost Jimmy Carter his job, right? And so the problem now is that Washington – they're dumb, but they're not that dumb. And they notice what happened, right? So next time around when you have a brutal inflation like that, you know, the good news is that we know how to fix it. You put somebody in there, it's going to hike rates to 20%. Yep. The bad news is you would have to be insane to be a president who actually appointed somebody who was going to do that because that's going to backfire on you. Uh, you'll end up taking one for the team, you know, saving the country, but losing your job. And, you know, given a choice between the country and their job, there's nobody in Washington cares about the country. So I think that if we do get to that kind of runaway inflation in the 70s, where we've got double digits that's lasting years and years, then um, I think there's very slim prospects of getting another Volcker in the mix. Do you, you, you mentioned uh, the buzzword of the moment, which is a recession. And right. a lot of economists that I speak with uh, focus on math. Right, it's it's pure math whether we go right. into a recession or not. Um, I, I guess what everybody's probably thinking right now as they're watching this is when when yeah, is the recession right. coming? I mean, it, it, I, I, the markets are kind of playing chicken and egg right now. Yep. They're they're out there risking you know an inordinate amount of of capital for a couple percentage points, then pulling back out again. There's a lot of volatility. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what would this, in, in, in your opinion, what would the signals be that the rails are starting to properly come off? Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of them. The What is muddying the waters on the recession debate right now is that almost all of the professional forecasters, they work with data, right? So they have these giant correlations and they run through all these regressions. And it's actually really easy to do. You can learn how to do it on Excel in like 10 minutes. Um, I know Regression correlation sounds sophisticated, but it's super duper easy. But at any rate, they run all this crap through their uh, statistics, and they are blind at the moment. The reason is because the lockdown screwed up so many things. Right, like there are all these charts, economic charts, where you've got all this zigzag, you know, year after year, and then you get to the lockdowns, and it was so extreme that it's like the whole chart zooms out. Now it just looks like a flat line for seventy years, and then a spike. I mean, it it just really busts out a lot of stuff. So, you know, for example, you've got about 5 million Americans who dropped out of the labor force. Uh, We think a lot of them retired early. We think a lot of them went on government benefits. 5 million did not die. Uh, So, you know, but there's like a lot of guesswork to sort of try to explain all these anomalies. The problem is that if you take those huge numbers and you stick those in your your little correlation, uh, it, it, it doesn't work. 
Um, like in other words, you know, you'll have a sample that goes back five recessions, which by the way, is not a very impressive number of statistics. Anyway, you'll have like these five numbers and then you stick in this massive weird number and the whole thing is just going to give you noise at that point. So I think that a lot of mainstream economists, they're, they're really going by feels at this point. They're like, you know, they just, whatever the number was last week, I guess that's probably what's going to happen next. Uh, so you know, the Fed is largely blind. Uh, Jerome Powell admitted this. He said, we are navigating uh, by the stars on a cloudy night, which, you know, when you kind of break that down logically, it means uh, that you're not navigating whatsoever. <laughs> if there's clouds out, yeah. you can't see the stars. Um, yeah. uh, but I mean, he was accurate. <laughs> like the Fed has absolutely no idea what they're doing. Uh, Austin Goolsby, who um, he's one of the Fed governors, I want to say Chicago, uh, I don't remember which, um, but at any rate, he was on the CEA, the Council of Economic Advisors. So that that that's kind of the you know the Olympics of government um, economic policy, and he's given a number of speeches where he's basically saying we we really don't know what's happening. Um, we're very interested in seeing what happens next. <laughs> and, you know, you're like you. Isn't the whole premise here that you guys actually understand an economy? Because if you don't, right, if the Fed doesn't actually understand what's happening in the economy, then, like, stop. <laughs> like, don't, don't touch <laughs> I anything. Well, I, like, know? I get this mental picture of, like, hundreds of trillions of dollars of wealth just sitting there on the sidelines, you know, eating popcorn, waiting for the next move. And, yeah, you know, nobody's sure. taking that step. Eating popcorn, but, like, with indigestion, I mean, like, that, that, <laughs> that capital is really nervous right now. You know, I mean, people are scared. Um, you know, you've got a lot of people like in their 70s who thought that they were all set. They thought they had their nest egg. And now they're, you know, they're wondering uh, whether that thing is going to evaporate. So, yeah, you've got a ton of capital on the sidelines. A lot of it right now is parked in cash, uh, you know, because you've got bonds paying or you've got money markets actually paying 5%. So most of my cash, uh, the part that isn't in Bitcoin is parked in, um, in money market funds. And yeah, a lot of that capital is waiting to see what's next. Yeah. And we, we, let's get to Bitcoin now because, uh, yeah. you know, a lot of people want to hear about that. Uh, when we spoke a couple of months ago, we first introduced each other uh, over, over a Zoom, you mentioned that Bitcoin is a vote and, and it is very American, right? To be able right. to vote. And we've talked constantly about separating money from state. Um, is Bitcoin, you know, an escape hatch from, from what we're currently seeing out there right now? Yeah, I think it definitely is at an individual level. So it's a lifeboat and, you know, you can take your assets and uh, remove them from the state's control, not only from the possibility of seizure. Bitcoin is much harder to seize than really, really uh, any other asset um, you could imagine, um, but protecting it from inflation. Right. So if, yeah. it, you know, every time inflation goes up, that's it's not one for one correlation, but that uh, that's essentially profit in your pocket if you own Bitcoin. That's also true for gold. But of course, the difference between Bitcoin and gold historically is that gold is very easy to seize. Right? Mm. The, you know, one of the interesting things about being a gold bug is that when you're talking to a fiat person, you go on about how amazing the gold standard is and how you know, historically it led to uh, high growth and innovation, all this. But then the fiat boy might ask you, well, if gold is so incredible, how come no country uses it today? Right, you got 200 odd jurisdictions. They all use crappy paper money. Uh, why is that? I think the answer is because gold is very, very easy to seize. Right. So if you would like to have a gold backed currency, you can't tell people, OK, this is backed by gold. 
but the gold is in a secret place. Okay. Like yep. you, you, you actually have to prove the gold is somewhere. You have to assay it. Uh, you know, ideally you would have like a camera looking at the gold 24 seven on the internet, like the old coffee machine cams we had in the nineties. Um, and so the government is, it, it's very easy for the government to, to come and visit you and have a discussion about what they'd like you to do with your gold. So there's been kind of the problem throughout history. And I think part of the reason why we have these economic cycles is that, you know, when the hard times hit, um, historically, we go back to hard money. The, you know, voters get frustrated. They demand um, an end to, to the inflation. Typically, hard times always feature inflation. Historically, every collapse of empire is inflationary. So voters come in, they say, enough of this inflation. We need something hard. We need some commodity-backed money. If the government doesn't provide it, the people will just do it uh, on their own. So it'd be gold or silver uh, historically. Mm -hmm. But the problem then, of course, things stabilize. Prosperity returns. The government gets back on its feet. It's got enough money that you know it's it's no longer worried about just paying its soldiers. Now it can actually go out and uh, predate upon the wider economy. And at that point, somewhere in that process, typically they do seize the gold. They do take over the money supply again, and then they crank up the inflation. So this has been a cycle, really going back. I mean, thousands of years. Uh, uh, Polybius in 250 BC was talking about the political cycle. He didn't know enough, enough about economics to trace out, you know, the economic contributions to it. Uh, but indeed, every one of these cycles, it, it features the exact same process. And so what's exciting to me about Bitcoin is that that offers the prospect to finally break that cycle, right? So the next time that we do impose hard money, if it's coming in the next five or 10 years, then I would assume that people are going to go back to gold just because there's yeah. much more familiarity Gold was actually the money in living memory. There are people who were on Wall Street in 1971 who are still alive. Warren Buffett would have been, I don't know, he would have been like in his 20s or 30s. All right, so it, yep. gold is not that science fiction for a lot of people. Um, so I would imagine we go to gold. Normally, that would set off the cycle again. And so we could basically set our watches to the next crisis because they're going to screw it up again. But I think what happens over time is that you know young people... The energy is not there for gold. Okay, they're excited about Bitcoin. Like if you talk to any 20-something ANCAP, they're excited about gold. If you talk to a 60-something ANCAP, chances are they're – or the older guys are excited about gold, the younger guys about Bitcoin. So I yep. think that you know, if the crisis is coming in the next five or ten years, we're going to go to gold. If the crisis is not coming for 30 years, then I think we're going to skip gold and we're just going to go direct to Bitcoin. Yeah. Either way, though, I think ultimately Bitcoin is getting the market share – um, just as younger people, it, it's a lot easier for younger people to absorb new ideas, especially something that's just completely revolutionary uh, like Bitcoin. And I think that ultimately, whether it's 10 or 30 years, we're going to get back to a Bitcoin standard. That's exciting because it could finally break that cycle. For sure. It was interesting. I was uh, in Jefferson City, Missouri, presenting at Bitcoin Expedition. It was hosted by Build Asset Management uh, and a great lineup. I mean, for, uh, you know, for a local... Uh, so, you know, sizable town, but smaller town. Uh, you know, we had Natalie Brunel there, Sam Callahan, Parker Lewis, Marty Bent came along. I did the 101 uh, Bitcoin presentation and it was difficult because there were a lot of different people with different age groups and demographics there. Interestingly enough, the individuals who got it first, you know, the value of self-custody, you know, being your own bank, older individuals in the crowd because they wow. either remember or remember their parents talking about April 5th, 1933, Executive Order 6102, FDR oh, wow. demands 
that gold yeah. um, gets submitted to um, the Fed and eventually the Treasury. They remember getting gold certificates. Then they remember 1971. So they, they went from a society where they actually had physical gold stored quite regularly, along with silver and other commodities, in their houses to seeing how the government can actually seize and control that over time based on a whim. And when yeah. we talk about Bitcoin in the future, we really push the importance of self-custody. For people that think that a, uh, a dominating force like the United States with the world reserve currency as the US dollar won't implement capital controls at some mm-hmm. point in time if they feel there's a danger to the structure that they've built up over time to, to be dominant and control, then they're yeah. just absolutely, they're crazy, right? Absolutely. Um, the, the, the Fed has already been floating that. They've got a series of papers uh, ever since Silicon Valley Bank went down in March. They've got a bunch of papers about friction tech that would slow bank runs. So, uh, in other words, it would lock you into a dying bank. Yeah, it's, it's scary. Interesting note on Bitcoin. When I, when I first started seeing the wood through the trees more recently, I've been involved for, for a couple of bull runs now and, and shared the pain with a number of other Bitcoiners. But <laughs> more recently, when I started to see bank failures, now that you mentioned that point, yeah. and Bitcoin kind of decorrelated from the stock market during that point in time, that was an eye-opening moment, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, a yeah. bank goes down, Bitcoin's price goes up. Another bank goes down, Bitcoin's price goes up. And that might very well be a precursor to what you were mentioning uh, as an escape hatch over maybe the next decade or, or couple decades as the younger generations kind of take hold of the economy. Um, yeah. And, and you know, one of the things that um, I think has been funny about Bitcoin, there's sort of a running joke that, you know, Bitcoin maxis were always like, Bitcoin fixes this, Bitcoin fixes that, right? And for outsiders, you know, it looks almost crazy, like cult-like, like, like, you know, what I gained 10 pounds. Does Bitcoin fix that? But the thing is, like, when you go through the litany, I mean, to me, it's just astounding. You know, Bitcoin was um, sort of founded uh, for, uh, you know, banks going under and then getting these uh, politicized bailouts. But just time after time, we keep seeing all these other things that Bitcoin does. Right. So, for example, um, the, you know, Trudeau with the free speech in Canada, right, where they, I mean, just like they flicked a switch and, you know, Canadians did not think they lived in that kind of a society where peaceful protests, I mean, literally like protesters could not buy a ham sandwich, like they could not buy groceries for their family. Uh, And, you know, it turned out that Bitcoin, you had a bunch of activists, a bunch of Bitcoiners in Canada who went over to the protests in Ottawa and, and were, you know, handing out Bitcoin addresses, pre-funding them, and then uh, soliciting donations. Now, that didn't have a big impact just because Bitcoin penetration is not high enough, right? You know, yep. there were only so many donors who, who are Bitcoin literate. Uh, you only have so many activists in Canada who are Bitcoiners. But that was just an illustration. You know, Bitcoin was not built for that, but it turns out, wow, it is absolutely perfect for that. Uh, the next one we saw was just the inflation. Right. So, again, yes. if you were arguing about inflation five years ago, if you were saying we're going to have 10 percent inflation, people would have thought you were absolutely insane. Right. You know, people, yep. uh, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, people would have assumed that you're just trying to go for clickbait. Uh, but then here we are. And, you know, all over the world now, we've got this this inflation will not quit what we're going on three years now. Uh, we've got core in the U.S. that's still over four percent. It's about twice uh, what what their target is. And that's even with the Fed now draining, they've drained 800 billion out 
uh, over the past year. They're, they're reducing their balance sheet and still inflation keeps going. In fact, inflation is going up again. So it's just crisis after crisis. It turns out that Bitcoin is the solution. And of course, the big granddaddy of it, which is that, you know, fundamentally control over central banking allows governments to seize an arbitrary amount of the wealth in their society. Okay, strictly speaking, if you are the U.S. government and you become interested in having more money, you could literally instruct Jerome Powell. See, you can finally make him do whatever you want because, you know, you can wield political threats. Uh, the, the, the Fed exists at the pleasure of Congress. So you could literally just instruct them to, you know, finance... <laughs> $50 trillion government deficits. Would you drive inflation? Absolutely. But in the process, you would get the $50 trillion. That would be a massive amount of water poured into the wine of all the other dollar holders in the world. That would effectively seize the better part, what about uh, close to three quarters of all of the dollars in the world by doing that. Okay, there's just this enormous ability for governments to seize assets once they have a central bank. That, I think, fundamentally, when we're talking about the long run, Yes, you've got, you know, the bank runs, the sort of near-term inflation, the free speech issues. But when I look to the long run, what Bitcoin fixes, I think that is it. So it chokes off the growth of government uh, that ends the, or at least it dramatically curtails the predation on the economy that's making us all, you know, poorer. Uh, it ends the wars. It ends the, what I call the crisis industrial complex, right, which is where, uh, you get a new crisis. Crises are fantastic for governments because governments can always grow in crises. Uh, Bob Higgs has a great book on this crisis and Leviathan. And what central bankers have become, we really saw this in COVID, they've become sort of venture capitalists for new crises. Okay, so if you take COVID, that was a, it was a pretty bad flu season for sure. And that got pumped into this world and threatening crisis why? Because they had a central banker standing by. So if you imagine early in COVID, you had a meeting of you know, government to decide what they're going to do about it. And if you had some guy show up who said, OK, we are going to shut down the entire economy. Yes, that's going to wipe out like half a tax revenue, but it's OK because, you know, the government does a lot of things that aren't necessary. So we can just lay off government workers. All right. So that would have been the end of him. Right. He would have been exiled to Guam. Um, but instead, they had the Federal Reserve and countries all over the world had these pet central banks so they could just do anything like, you know, no crisis is too insane to contemplate because you've got the money printer standing by. They effectively fund your crisis through the early stages when voters might get upset about losing money. Right. So thanks to the Fed, we could have covid lockdowns where millions of Americans were paid to sit on the couch and actually make more money than they did at work. You know, so when the rest of us wonder, like, why did Americans roll over and accept totalitarianism? Well, they were being paid to sit on the couch. It turns out <laughs> you can buy a lot of totalitarianism that way. And that was all courtesy of the Fed. So fundamentally, I mean, for me anyway, that is what's exciting about Bitcoin in the long run is that it chokes off the growth of government. You know, if we look at government in the 20th century, which I mean, really, if you sort of go through history and you trace out the size of government, Governments typically took something like 2 or 5% of GDP historically. It was an impressive government who could manage 5%. Uh, 
I, it, it, it was just hard. It was hard to keep track of, you know, who's doing what. You didn't have computerized records. Uh, you didn't have the IRS until, you know, essentially 100 years ago. Uh, these things, you know, uh, governments would typically fund themselves by having like customs. OK, they would they would intercept ships coming in and charge them uh, some percent, basically a sales tax. Of course, ships know this. So they go around. So, you know, smuggling was a uh, longtime profession. Governments, uh, for technological reasons, they were very small. And in the 20th century, uh, they just exploded, right? Starting, I guess, around 1880, uh, you started to have some technologies, uh, tallying machines and, and things that made it easier. But what really, you know, so that bring go- brought government up to 10, 20%. What really sent government to the stratosphere, I mean, at this point, even in the U.S., the government spends about 50%. When you take federal, state, and local, it's about 50% of everything we earn uh, is seized by the government for their own ends. And fundamentally, you know, if you trace that out to control over the money, a huge part of that is driven by the Federal Reserve, by their ability to spend unlimited deficits and then essentially turn around to us and say, look, you are deeply in debt, you know, because their debt is, is on our account. I'm not sure why it is, but apparently it is. Uh, so the, you know, sort of end game, I think, on Bitcoin is to choke off that, to sort of starve the beast. Uh, I hope ultimately just move back down towards that historical level of five or 10 percent. If the government were collecting five percent, I think a lot of us wouldn't care about it anymore. It wouldn't yeah. be able to break that yeah. much. I mean, sure, they'd be idiots, but whatever. They would be idiots with their own little, you know, they would just be hitting each other on the head and we could ignore them. You know, one, one thing that's interesting, speaking of the ineptitude of, of the federal government and Federal Reserve, a lot of people are celebrating the potential spot ETFs that are yeah, right. perhaps imminently coming out. Um, and you'll remember, and I remember when the first gold spot ETF was launched in 2004, we saw some excitement around growth of uh, the price of gold after that period of time. But we also saw a suppression in my opinion, in the real price of gold. Uh, and this was one way to kind of implement some type of control, capital control on the price of gold and the flight of people to safety. We now have these ETFs and we have a handful of potential suitors for these ETFs. We only have one entity that will be custodying the uh, Bitcoin, maybe two, uh, under the purview of the federal government, right? And then- yep. On top of all of that, um, we have this CBDC, FedNow, which will ultimately turn into a CBDC and, and, and create levels of control on our money that will be disgusting to us, I think, yeah. in, in a decade's time. I don't know if I should be happy about these spot ETFs coming about or if it just gives the government another way to try to control something that is relatively uncontrollable to them. Yeah, I've got mixed feelings about the ETF. Um, I mean, I think broadly speaking, it's a positive thing just because it um, brings a lot more people into the ecosystem. Um, there's a lot of people who are intimidated by the mechanics of Bitcoin, and they're they're sympathetic to the idea. Uh, they want protection from inflation. Um, they're probably still in the early stage of the learning curve where, uh, honestly, it might be premature for them to self-custody. <laughs> you know, like if my grandmother wanted to dabble in Bitcoin, <laughs> I would tell her to get an ETF. Don't yeah. don't start with the seed phrase, Grandma. No, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, I'm I'm encouraged on the ETF in terms of uptake. I think that's also been true with gold, right? Like, if you take the percent of people 
who hold physical bullion uh, who self-custody gold versus the percent of people who have access to it through these financial instruments. I mean, it's, it's I don't know, 10 to 1, 50 to 1. Uh, For sure. It's a massive difference. So, and, and that's, you know, pleasing, number one, because I think it helps normalize uh, Bitcoin throughout society. And I do think that, you know, we know how the fiat story ends. Um, we know how the book ends. We don't know how each chapter ends. Um, and the book ends with a return to hard money. And when that day comes, it's going to be either gold or Bitcoin. Um, so, you know, anything that, that sort of advances Bitcoin in that narrative, uh, I am rooting for. Uh, at the same time, yes, you know, given some of the parties involved in the Bitcoin ETF, BlackRock specifically, uh, we could imagine that there would be shenanigans um, trying to control the price. I think, broadly speaking, Wall Street sees Bitcoin as just a really uh, profitable product. You know, Wall Street, sort of like the politicians with no spines, um, say what you will, Wall Street chases profits. This, you can depend on them. They're like a dog. If you throw a pot roast on the floor, they will go for it. And, you know, looking at a lot of the motives with um, the characters involved in Bitcoin ETFs, I think that they're mostly chasing profit at this point. And so you could argue that there's some logic to having somebody like BlackRock potentially on the other side. Okay, so when the government wants to clamp down on Bitcoin broadly or on self-hosted wallets, which, you know, I think could um, could impact the price of Bitcoin at any rate. Uh, it's nice to imagine that you might have some huge lobbyists like that who can, you know, I mean, really BlackRock, I think, has more control than than politicians. Uh, but then, of course, you know, that could go either way. Right. So BlackRock could also play on the other side. BlackRock is um, happy to cooperate with regulators. Uh, I don't believe they have a strong stance on uh, against CBDCs. I mean, really, the Wall Street, um, the payment companies like MasterCard really across the board, big business is on board with CBDCs. They love the idea. Uh, partly it's bootlicking, but partly, you know, it does reduce costs for them. And they they don't care about uh, constitutional freedoms. Um, indeed, that's not their job, right? Like if your constitutional yeah. freedoms are depending on MasterCard, you're, you're doomed. Um, our job as, you know, I guess I would call you and I activists, um, our job is to worry about constitutional freedom. So, you know, I don't necessarily hate MasterCard for lobbying for a CBDC. I understand why they're doing it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, people like us, I think, have to fight them tooth and nail. Last question for you. You have a microphone in your hands and you've yes. been given 30 seconds to speak to the entire world. What would you want to say to them? Governments have been predators on the people for thousands of years, and it is an eternal battle. Uh, don't lose hope. We have many more advantages than people ever have in the past, largely thanks to the Internet, number one. Number two, thanks to the American Constitution, which no matter what your country is, it is the most libertarian ruling document, arguably in world history. We have all the tools we need. We have the blueprint. We have the means. Seize the power. Excellent. And how can people find you online? I am on Twitter. X. Everybody should be over there. That's where the conversation is. Elon Musk has been very pro-freedom and very pro-Austrian economic. He just posted a tweet today on Hayek. He had Salma Hayek in the picture, which is a uh, – he knows what he's doing, and I welcome that <laughs> conflation. I think that's very good from a branding perspective. 
Uh, so anyway, Twitter, Prof St. Ange, and then I also do uh, podcasts and weekly articles. Check those out at petersaintange.com. Ken, thank you enough for joining for my first episode. Very exciting. And uh, I'd like to remind everybody as uh, Professor B, please get off zero and get on to the Bitcoin standard. Thanks again, Professor. Appreciate your time. Always a pleasure. Looking forward to what you build this into. Thank you. Learn more at learnbitcoin.io.